Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our series this morning that's titled Relationship or Religion. If you uh, are joining us for the first time this morning, we're kind of nearing the end of this series, but I also want to kind of get you caught up because the subtitle of this series has been Confronting the Chains of Legalism. I don't know about you, but sometimes you attend different churches and you get all sorts of different brands of what, how people interpret the Bible and what religion looks like. And I think that uh, for me, I love just really simplifying things. I love that, I really believe that faith is meant to be simplified, and I'm, I truly believe that Jesus simplified our faith, but I, I'm kind of posing this question to us is, could you summarize the Christian faith in two to four words? And I think a lot of different people would come up with many different answers, but I just really believe the best answer that I've ever heard is that Jesus wants relationship, not religion, Right? So this morning, we continue to play off this entire idea, and, and here's what I know about the Bible, is that the Bible causes all sorts of different people come to all sorts of different conclusions and use the Bible to justify all sorts of different things. So in this series, we've been trying to develop this idea of how do we make applications out of the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? How do we address many of the different interpretations that we see? How do we address people that maybe have never opened the Bible uh, ever in their life but have Googled search, have Google searched some pretty crazy stories uh, in the Bible and now have an understanding of God based off of this story? So for us, I'm challenging us as a church is that if you identify as a follower of Jesus, we need to be people that are more thoughtful in our approach to the Bible and how we approach it and how we interpret it and how that affects how we live today. So we've been in this series for, for, for several weeks now, and, and just to kind of get us caught up, I just truly believe up on the screen, we're talking about average Joe Bible readers. I believe that you and I, uh, we're average Joes, right? We're not scholars. We're not theologians. I say this every week. If you are or you consider yourself one, um, I need you, so come uh, be a resource to our, to our church, right? Um, but many of us, we're just, we're just average Joes, right, trying to figure out, trying to stumble through this thing called life and find ways where the Bible becomes applicable to us. So we've made some conclusions in this series so far, and, and the main one has been about covenants. So uh, if we could go to that previous slide, uh, we have a definition of covenants. The ancient world functioned on covenant agreements between two parties that are legal and binding. Each covenant typically had a history of how the parties walked out this covenant together. This body of literature is called a canon. So we've made some conclusions based on this idea that throughout the Bible chronologically, there was these things called covenants made between God and his people. And the main conclusion we've been playing off is the idea that God acts accordance with the covenant he is in. Sometimes we read stories in the Bible, we're like, that doesn't make sense the way that God acts. Well, with this main interpretive lens, as we read through the Bible, we can understand, man, it, it's really based on the covenant that he is in and the chronology of where we're reading the Bible. Sometimes you weird, read a story that you're like, I don't, I, I don't understand that. Well, it's helpful for us to zoom out and interpret that story of, well, what covenant was God in with that particular person during this point in biblical history? So to get us up to speed, we've looked at three types of major covenants that are really going to help us understand the Bible. And the first major type of covenant is called a grant covenant. This is a great covenant. This is a covenant when a greater and lesser person come into covenant together, and the greater one takes on all of the obligations. The lesser one only needs to receive the covenant. So we see this as a model in the biblical text of the way that God relates to humanity um, several times, right? We also have what's called a kinship covenant. Next major covenant, a kinship covenant, a covenant when two equal parties come together, as in a marriage. Each party takes on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations that was very evenly divided between the two parties. 
A kinship covenant was also referred to as a parity covenant. So that's uh, a little less advantageous than a grant covenant, but a covenant that for us, how we relate to it today, we can think of the, the marital covenant between two parties, right? And then lastly, the last type of covenant, which is probably the least advantageous, is what we would call a vassal covenant. This is a covenant when a greater and lesser person come into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. Instead of destruction, the greater one offers the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes and tribute, take slaves and so forth. Typically, this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered to the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule. As a result, in this covenant, the greater person had all the power and the lesser person had to fulfill a large number of obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant for all you ancient Near East Bible scholars out there this morning, right? So we've been looking at these covenants, you guys. So we've made some progress in the series so far. So the next is going to be a list of the covenants we've been looking at. And there's five main covenants in the Bible, in the biblical text, in the biblical narrative that, once again, are going to be helpful in terms of our interpretation. Number one is the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Noah, the promise to never flood the earth ever again. This was a grant covenant. This was the advantageous one, the one that like, God's like, this is on me. This will never happen again. Then we read chronologically and we get to this character named Abram, whose name gets changed to Abraham. And God makes a covenant, promises a covenant to multiply uh, through him a family line that will bless, be a seed of blessing globally to the, to the entire earth. That's the promise of God that we read early on in the, books of, in the book of Genesis, right? And that's also a grand covenant. Then we get to the Mosaic covenant, which we talked about last week, which is called the Old Covenant. And this is where for many people, for many atheists, for many people that do not choose to read the Bible in context, pull out crazy stories. Well, last week we talked about why this is. Because God offered his people relationship and they asked instead for a mediator. So what was once a grant covenant, direct access to God, God adjusted his covenant to what we would call a kinship covenant because of the mediator who ends up being Moses, a biblical character many people are familiar with. And eventually, as a covenant partner, what God's people prove time and time again, as they have and as we have as living and breathing human beings, is we fail time and time again. We're not God. Some of us in the room might have a God complex. That's different. But we realize really soon we aren't God. We don't have the universe in our hands, right? And humanity proved this as covenant partners with God. They proved to be really lousy covenant partners. And by the time Moses was done, he hands the leadership off to a character named Joshua in the biblical text. And there had to be a renewal of the covenant. And because there was a renewal, what was custom during that time is they had to say, hey, was this covenant partner a good covenant partner? And because the nation of Israel was a horrible covenant partner because of their failure, time and time again, unfortunately, the covenant had to be renewed and it had to be downgraded into what we would call a vassal covenant, which is many of the laws that we read in the book of Leviticus are born out of. And, and, and so now, in the biblical covenant... And in the biblical narrative, we're getting to the fourth covenant that we're about to kind of zoom forward into called the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant that we're going to be looking at this morning. This is the covenant that we're going to be focusing in on and understanding the biblical narrative and how that applies to us today in terms of where we live and how we live. And we live under the fifth major covenant of the Bible called the new covenant, the one that Jesus set up, the one that breaks religion down, the one that silences legalism, the one that offers God in relationship, direct relationship with human beings. Amen. And this morning we're going to look at the Davidic covenant. And as, as I have every week, I'm encouraging us, uh, we're going to be doing something in, in, in the next several weeks uh, called Conversation Sunday. Um, 
we just believe that we, wanna, we want church to be, not just be a monologue. We want it to be a dialogue. So we're giving opportunity for you, as we're digesting some of these ideas about the Bible, to ask questions. And you can go to our website under the events, and there's a little dialogue box that stays anonymous, and you can ask any question. If there's something that's popped up in the series, you're like, I don't understand this, or, man, I question God's character in this scenario, you know. Man, I'm really interested in prayer and why certain prayers aren't answered. You know, we've got so many good questions, you guys. We're going to be dedicating a whole service where we're going to be addressing these questions that maybe are kind of out there in the open. And we're going to talk about these things in light of who we've discovered God to be in this series. So I'm really looking forward to that. So, man, keep asking questions. We're not there yet, but we're going to be. And in the meantime, I'm gathering as many questions as I can. Sound good? All right. Like two people. Great. We're going to pray this morning and we're going we're gonna to move on. All right. Here we go. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your grace, your power. Lord, I'm so thankful for your presence that just chooses to dwell among your people. So, Lord, I'm thankful for the worship that was, was offered up to you, the musical worship. And, and, and once again, we're reminded of, of the truth that says that you inhabit the praises of your people. So, Lord, we're just thankful that, Lord, there's an environment right now for you to move. Lord, there's an environment right now for faith to increase. There's an environment right now where legalism will be utterly silenced in your name and in your presence. So, Lord, we welcome all that you would have for us, and we just pray all religion and legalism would be silenced in the name of Jesus over these next several minutes. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. All right, well, this morning we uh, are going to be looking at the Davidic covenant, and to get us kind of caught up of Israel's leadership, I, I touched on it a little bit. We're going to be kind of moving pretty quickly into the biblical narrative, and there's been some leadership changes. I mentioned one, Moses hands off. Uh, leadership to Joshua, and then we enter into the book of Judges, if you've ever kind of hung out in the Old Testament reading your Bible, uh, this, this book of Judges that talks about Israel's new form of leadership. It was led by several judges, and that season leads into a season where a judge, Samuel, uh, ushers in as the, Israel's first king, and it's interesting because God's people um, really, really were desiring a king. And some people kind of get in squabbles about, man, the intentions of Israel, like were, were they supposed to have a king or not? The, 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 main, the main idea behind this idea is God's people were so desperate for a human king that they forgot their rightful king, who was God, right? Also known as Yahweh. Anytime you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's a, a transliteration of uh, the name of God, which is Yahweh. The, the, name, the name that God revealed to Moses, saying that I am who I am, right? So... They forget that God is their king, their rightful king, so they have such a desire for an earthly king that they're almost leaving God behind. So it, it turns into this whole situation for Israel where they're welcoming these leaders of kings, right? So we get to the leadership of Saul, and that eventually leads into the leadership of a guy named David, which many of us, if you're familiar with Bible stories or, or children's Bible stories that many times we teach, even though uh, David cuts off the head of Goliath, which is kind of inappropriate, right, for kids, um, David and Goliath, right? Um, so anyway, David, and he goes on to be the greatest king of Israel. So we're, that's where we're going to kind of pick up, right? And, and where we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel this morning is a time where David as a king, man, he's built this glorious home for himself. And in the meantime, God doesn't really have that great of a house. During this time, God's presence has followed the people of God, and his presence has dwelt within what we would call a tent or what's known as a tabernacle. So David, he's like, man, I got this massive tent, but I want to give God a home. I want to give him a place to dwell. Like, I'm feeling a little bit guilty. So he's talking to his buddy who's a prophet, Nathan, right? They serve together in Israel. And Nathan's like, yeah, go for it. Well, what happens is, is, is God actually intervenes in, in, in a dream, right? 
Nathan uh, gets called out by God. So that's where we're going to pick up in the narrative as David is wanting to build this house for God. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 5. Hang with me this morning. The Bible's going to be up on the screen. It says this to Nathan, God speaking, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, your rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So it's like, man, God intervenes and he begins to just speak some promises over David and his lineage and his royalty, right? And a few verses later, we get David's response. This is many times very common when we see kind of a covenant-type relationship beginning. Usually there's an offer, and then we kind of look into, okay, what's, what's the response? So a few s- verses later, David responds to all that God is promising. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 through 19, he says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. And if you look in the subnotes, we're looking at the NIV. And the way this is translated is we have that word human actually translated into human race. So we understand that this is not only a promise that God's declaring is like, God, how great are you and how less are we? He's talking about this is a massive promise that's going to benefit not only him individually as a human being, but everyone corporately as human beings. David knew of God's greatness and power in light of humanity. And then we see in other little places sprinkled around that this section of scripture was in fact a covenant. The word covenant's not mentioned, but we are alluded to a confirmation that this section of what God was speaking over David during this time was a covenant. Let's look at those really quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 7, a few verses later, 28 through 29, says this. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised me these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. I love this. A few verses later, David's like, I know what's happening. 
This is a covenant. This is a grand covenant that is being offered. Promises on behalf of God saying, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this. Will you take this? Will you accept this? Later in the Psalms, which is a mashup of different writings by different leaders. Some of those are written by David. Some of those are written by one of the Israel's kings, Absalom. There's, there's tons of different Psalms that we read, which are chronologically spread. We have them as a collection, right, in the Bible. But in Psalm 89, I love this, 3 through 4, it says this. You said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne, your throne firm through all generations. So once again, there's other parts of the Bible that are looking into this event, this time where God begins speaking over David. And, and others are identifying this. So this is obviously a covenant. This is how God is relating in the midst of all these other covenants. This is how God is relating to David during this time. There's something special that's going to be happening through what David, his, his royalty, his leadership, his family line. God is instituting a covenant in the midst of this other covenant with all these laws and legalities. There's something God is stirring up at this point in the biblical narrative. At this point in Israel's history. An unconditional covenant. Very much like the covenant that Abraham received over several chapters of Genesis that we talked about a few weeks ago. That God began to speak into the life of Abraham and Abraham, and it begins to speak this covenant and saying, I'm going I'm to bless you. Through you, all of the earth will be blessed. So let's look really quickly at the four major promises. There's four major promises that we just read. Kind of break it down. There's a lot of text we're going to pull out four major things that God speaks over David, over his life, this covenant that God's making with David. He says, I will make your name great. I will build you a house. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house, kingdom, and throne shall be forever. So, I will make your name great. Let's talk about that one. It's interesting. Let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to Genesis 12. This language is very similar to a previous covenant of what God had promised Early on in the books, in the, in the pages of the Bible. Let's, let's be reminded by this in Genesis 12. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land. I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So there it is. David's promise, the promise of God through Abram, now is being confirmed once again through a promise that God is giving to David. He's like, hey, my promises, like those are still true. Those promises that maybe haven't fully developed yet, let me, let me remind you. Let me promise through this new leader of Israel that, man, my promise is still true. But then we have these other promises, right? As we go back to those four. I will build you a house, right? Talking about David's house, his rulership, his dynasty, right? The third one. I will be his father and he will be my son. We know that that's speaking about Solomon, David's son, who, who ends up being the rightful heir to be the leader of Israel, who, who builds God this temple, right? So we see these promises being fulfilled and as we read on in the Bible, what we see and we identify God is promising David these things right, right here in the midst of it all. And then number four, your house, kingdom, and throne shall be forever, David. He's going to have an everlasting dynasty. Still to this day, you, you hear about King David, like he's known as the greatest king of Israel, right? He has a legacy that still to this day, that's how people identify him as they look at him as a biblical character. The greatest king in Israel. But let's, let's, let's back up a little, but also kind of zoom back in to those promises. 
as, as, they're, as they're spoken in, in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. Let's read these again. It says, when your days are over and your rest, you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. So we know when we read this, these are massive promises that God's giving, but he's speaking about the specific character, Solomon. Well, what's interesting in the biblical text is this idea of prophetic language. Meaning this, when people spoke prophetically, there was a dualistic nature of prophecy. The first thing is that when somebody spoke prophetically, typically they were talking to the immediate context. Hey, expect this to happen. And then what do you know? Solomon goes on to lead the people of Israel, builds God a temple. All of these things get fulfilled, right? But in any piece of prophetic language, there's always a dualistic nature of there's the present, but there's also a future. It's this dualistic nature that God is speaking through someone or he is speaking aloud, making promises, and he is speaking to an immediate context and audience, but he's also speaking forward. And this is helpful for us to understand that this promise is something that happens and is fulfilled within the next several hundred years, but also there's a future dynamic of a larger promise to come. There's something in the future that's a massive promise that's about to happen, right? And we can understand as we have and we zoom and we fast forward in the Bible to the book of Hebrews, how this plays out into this promise of a, of a specific context, but also how it plays out to the future and the benefits of us as people that are identifying and saying, hey, I'm just trying to follow God today. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says in Hebrews. Love this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, speaking of Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again... I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, that is a direct quote out of the promises that God had given to David that the author of Hebrews now is applying to Jesus. This is a fulfillment that is now being applied not to the immediate context, not to just Solomon, but it's this dualistic prophetic nature that's hundreds of years have passed by, and this promise is being fulfilled through Jesus. David receives this grant covenant that's promised to be a blessing to the whole earth. And it's different than this covenant that God made that we referred to last week as the old covenant. God, God's saying this is going to happen. Th this is going to be fulfilled. The other covenant that we referred to last week called the Old Covenant, the covenant that was instituted by Moses where the people of God said, nah, we'd rather have a mediator, right? And the, the, essentially God adjusts and it's downgraded into this kinship type covenant. This covenant, this other covenant is very conditional. It's based on you will be blessed if you do so and so and so and so and so. 
You will be blessed if there's condition after condition. But what God is instituting right here through David is promises are about to be fulfilled. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger scope of what I'm doing with humanity. Now, I'm going to work with humanity in the midst of it. I'm not going to shove this through their throat, down their throat. But what I'm going to promise is in the end game, man, my heart will be revealed. And we know that is fulfilled through what Jesus has done. And this just begins to really make a lot of sense when we begin to fast forward into the ministry of Jesus in our Bibles. We fast forward. So look, the Gospel of Matthew, the first verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Look what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Two titles, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, why wouldn't, what about Moses? Wasn't he a big biblical hero? What about that covenant that God made with Moses? No, there's, there's two fulfillments that are highlighted here. There's, there's some promises that were given to Abraham, and there were some promises that were given to David. Ones that God said, hey, these are going to be blessings. These are going to come forth. These are going to come true. These will be fulfilled. And we understand Jesus as the fulfillment through these promises that were given to both David and Abraham. Grant covenants. You remember those grant covenants I gave you? God saying in the beginning, as we begin to talk about and are introduced to the character of Jesus. Here he is. Here he is. He's the fulfillment. Want to know what my heart is like? Here it is. You're beginning to experience the benefits of the long game, the end game heart. You're beginning to understand this history of Israel was just a process, was just a vehicle to get to the point in human history where God's plan could be fully realized and revealed in terms of how he sees and relates to the world that we live in today. Let's look also in the Gospel of Luke. The beginning of the Christmas story. Anybody already put up your Christmas tree? Come on, people are getting excited for Christmas already. Nobody. All right. Yeah, neither have we. Uh, my birthday's next week, so I was like, babe, we can't do it until after my birthday. I just have to separate those two events in my mind. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, but obviously nobody's going to judge me because none of you have put up your tree either. So whatever. Okay. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. We know the Christmas story. Jesus' birth, right? Virgin birth through this woman named Mary. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Here we go. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Let's, let's, let's go back to the promises of, of, of the Davidic covenant. Remember these? I will make your name great. I will build you a house. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house, your kingdom, your throne shall be forever. There's some things applied to Solomon. There's some things applied to David and his legacy. Uh, Abraham's promise is wrapped up in there. And then we get, we move into this whole Jesus idea in Luke chapter 1, right? He will be great. God will give him the throne of his father David. He will be called the son of the most high. He will reign forever and his kingdom will never end. This, this begins to unlock so many different ideas when it comes to certain titles that we read about in the, in the biblical text. Son of God. Right? I love blind Bartimaeus. In fact, blind Bartimaeus, this guy who's blind, he, he asks for God to have mercy on him. Right? And God heals him. 
and he uses a specific title. You know what title he uses? He uses Son of David. Well, why in the world would he use this title, Son of David? Because he knows. He's referring back to that promise hundreds of years ago that we read in 2 Samuel, right? Calling and saying, I know that you are the fulfillment of God's heart. Why else would he use this title, Son of David? Son of God. We begin to really wrap our arms around this title and understand what it means. Because when we use the title Son of God to refer to David, we're saying, hey, remember those promises you made back in the day, God? We understand and affirm that Jesus, you are the fulfillment. Because you are that son. Yes, there's an immediate context talking about Solomon, but we know there was a greater context and promise to your blessing through the entire world. And you are the son of God, Jesus. And we understand that your kingdom is everlasting. You have a royal throne that God has instituted and created to be the rightful king of Israel, to be our savior, to be our Messiah. But here's what I know. As imperfect human beings, um, we don't understand necessarily the big picture. I love when the Bible says that we see in part, right? There's just certain things in our faith journey and our walk with God that, man, we, we don't see the full picture. How many of you guys know this is the same as the early church during that time, right? They had an expectation, when they thought about Messiah, you know what they thought about? They're like, okay, Jesus, family line of David, you're here, you're the son of David, you're the son of God, we'll use that title, we'll use that title. They're using that title, but you know what their expectation was? The temple that was uh, destroyed was going to be rebuilt, right? And, and now that the temple is rebuilt, the rightful king is going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to be a better king than David. He's going to have an earthly reign and he's going to rule and he's going to be just and he's going to be the Messiah, Man, in Jerusalem, we're going to be the kings again. We're going to be great again. Israel's going to be the greatest nation on earth. This was everyone's expectation. Their expectation was Jesus was going to come in earthly form. But we know the end of the story. Jesus gets murdered. Can you imagine when you are like, this is the guy, he gets murdered. You're like, all your hope, you're like, you're, this is why they, the, the disciples, the early church leaders who saw Jesus be crucified were such in such anguish. They're like, what about our legacy? What about the promises? Our entire faith walk and our faith journey is falling apart. Maybe we were a part of a cult when we were following Jesus, right? You can only imagine all these people questioning. Their earthly rightful king was to be crucified. But once again, we know the end of the story. Jesus dies, but he conquers death. And he raises again. And after he raises, he gives a promise to his early church. Now we're beginning to get into the application of how this affects people who identify as followers of Jesus today. So the resurrected Jesus meets with his, his, his church leaders at that time. The early church is a handful of people, apostles. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 where we get a lot of clarity on, on what, what the expectations were in terms of how Jesus was to rule and to reign. So Acts chapter 1 Verses 1 through 9, the story of the early church in the book of Acts. At the very beginning, it says, in the former book, Theophilus, this is the apostle Luke writing. He's writing and he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he persecuted himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and, and asked him a question. It's really interesting. First and foremost, he's saying, hey, wait in Jerusalem. But then you're going to go. But you need to wait for something. But then you're going to go, right? And for a lot of people, their earthly expectation is like, wait a second, this is Jerusalem. This is the temple. This is where you're going to rule and reign. Our, we have an earthly expectation of how you're going to rule and reign. You're going to rule and reign in the same temple that David reigned in. You know, we've rebuilt it, and this is, this is awesome, and everything's kind of going according to plan. And they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is just resurrected from the dead, and they're still asking the same question. Like, how does this fit into the, this whole idea that, like, you're going to stay here, and you're going you're gonna to rule and reign, right? And he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus is like, it's on you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you power, which we see later on in the book of Acts, the power of God raining down on his early church. And he's like, guess what? Peace out. I'm not going to earthly reign. I'm going to reign in a spiritual dimension. Okay, here we go. Earthly thinking about who God is, how he's going to reign. Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're going to merge heaven and earth. We're going to bridge those things together. My church on earth is a church of power. We are not a church that is stagnant, but we are a church that moves from the comfort of Jerusalem out to the outside to move the gospel, to move the power of God. I, what one man has done, has now been empowered through many. Spread my word. Go tell people about my goodness and know while you're doing it, I'm empowering you to do more things than I ever did. Those are the words of Jesus. You will do greater things than I ever did. Not to say that we're going to be greater than God, but how many of you guys know that much more can be accomplished by multiple than one? And Jesus is saying, I know I did a lot of ministry in a few years, but man, what the church is about to do over the next several hundreds of years is not even going to be matched because I'm giving you my spirit. I'm giving you relationship. You're going to have relationship with me, and it's a relationship where you're going to receive power where it goes beyond your scope of who you are, but you choose to die to yourself and serve others, not by just words and being good with your words, but understanding that there's power in the name of Jesus, that people's struggles, that people's burdens, man, we can pray to release those things in Jesus' name, hopelessness that people carry in this world. Man, we have the power to minister deeply and powerfully to each and every need that exists in this world. We need to go beyond the natural thinking of a rule and reign, and we need to merge that rulership with an idea that heaven is crashing into earth because I, as God, have chosen to have relationship with my people. Did Jesus come to fulfill this covenant that God made with Mo Moses, the, the one we talked about last week? Is that what he did? Um, because a lot of people are under the impression that, yeah, Jesus came and he, you know, he fulfilled, right? He fulfilled all of these things. He came and he, and he affirmed this, this, this covenant that, that was a, a covenant that was based on blessings if. No, actually, once again, as the book of Hebrews tells us, the new covenant, this new thing that Jesus did is a better covenant. This other one in Israel's history is now obsolete. 
Jesus begins to redefine. He replaces this covenant. And what's amazing is there was no promises in terms of how Israel functioned with God in the old covenant, this covenant that between Moses as the mediator and God's people. There were no future promises to be fulfilled. All of the future promises we see are fulfilled in Jesus through what he has done. The old covenant, the covenant that God instituted through Moses, where God's people said, eh, we'd rather have a mediator. Eh, we don't want to be your priests. Eh, we don't want to be a collective community on behalf of you. We know that that's a temporary system for blessings and curses related to Israel in a specific time, in a specific place. And what we see burst forth in human history is Jesus stepping on the scene and becoming the fulfillment, the heart of God, personified as a human being, being the heart of God in terms of the end game of how God sees the earth he loves so much playing out for the rest of human history. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants to the whole world, and it is the destruction of the Mosaic covenant. No more. No more conditions. No more if, and then you are blessed. No more if, and if you don't, you are cursed. It's over. This thing is over because now I am welcoming you once again to be the priesthood. Not to make sacrifices for your sins through a priest who sacrifices an animal, right? No, no, no. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, once for all, fulfills this type and fulfills this idea that the perfect sacrifice, the blameless, spotless sacrifice was made as he died on the cross to be the fulfillment that we would be benefits, benefactors of this thing called the new covenant through what Jesus has done. So here we are today, 2018. The promises of God, the new covenant. So what does this look like for us? Right? What, what does this look like? I love the writings of Paul. Paul, he writes to all these early churches, right, that were having trouble, crazy stuff was happening, and he clarifies the mission, right? We read about all these letters, 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, hey, I got to write them again, right? We have all these different letters where Paul and early church leaders are addressing certain situations. That's what these letters are, right? And for us, it can become so encouraging because we see it transcend human history and apply to our lives today. And here's, here's something so amazing, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, Greece, modern day Greece, in, in, in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. He gives us, he, he encourages us in kind of our mission, what, what we're all about here. He clarifies some stuff in terms of how we relate to this old kind of religious type of law that existed that now Jesus has replaced with this thing called the new covenant. It says, he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him. That when, when, you, when, you, when you profess the name of Christ, you're saying, you know what? My, my ways, I'm giving up my ways. I'm giving up my will. Because now my life is for you, Jesus. Who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Here it is. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, well, Jesus, the Messiah, we expected you to come rule and reign in an earthly standpoint. But now we're realizing we don't do that anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled to us himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. Do we hear that this morning? I, I feel like there's some churches sometimes that, that profess Jesus that like, kind of like to tally mark the sins that are counted against the people. But there's a new freedom in the new covenant that says what God has done, that means that, man, these sins aren't counted against us in terms of how God sees his people, how God sees the world. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Committed to who? To us. You're saying that we're the reconcilers? Yep. Based on the power of God and my heart. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who, he had, no, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become that church. When we receive the full new covenant with open arms, you know what happens? Powerful God ministry breakthrough happens. You know what breaks my heart as a pastor? People who have gnarly, unhelpful, hurtful, baggage type church experiences. Because what I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is God saying, you're the one. You're the ambassador. So when people have poor church experiences, you know what that means? There's been a poor job done of being fully into the new covenant reality of God in the modern church today. We have forgotten, we have been blinded, and we have forgotten our job is to reconcile. Where there is unrest, reconcile. Where there is unrest, don't join a side, reconcile. Be the bridge. Ambassadors, he's making his appeal through you. But we want to go back to the old and count the sins, join in with the finger pointing, Look nothing like the heart of God when God has said the new covenant. Guess what that's all about? Go, multiply, spread the love, reconcile. Where there's division, guess what? Opportunity. Bring a bridge of peace. And we look and we're like, 2018, there's so much unrest. Oh, there's so many. We freak out. We start freaking out. We forget about the new covenant. We forget about our job. We forget about the church being the greatest nonprofit of all time. Because it's not just a nonprofit in money terms. It's a nonprofit filled with God's power and his mission and his heart for the world. Are we missing the points? And here's how we miss the point, church. When we get stuck in, re in religion... In the muck of religion, we get stuck in the laws of the old covenant, and we're so focused on, God, do you love me? God, is your judgment going to rain down on me? <laughs> and the enemy just wants us to stay there, to believe in the religious lies of curses. When we're, under a cur we're not under the curse anymore, we're under blessing. To believe in the legalism that says, oh, i got to please God. When God's saying, it's a free gift, take it, run with it, bring people with you. Eternity is at stake. When we get caught up in religion, the enemy's like, cool, stay there. Because you're never going to do anything outside of yourself because you're so focused on you. This morning, church, man, if you don't believe God loves you, receive it this morning. Receive it in full and understand that now that you've received it, go. Go. Go, the, the Bible says. Go and make disciples. Jesus is like, hey, here's my mission from here on out. Go. Multiply. Spread. Go. Spread. 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 But you know what sometimes happens and cripples us? It's like, well... I come to church and that's not my favorite worship song. Or, hey, can we do this, that, different? Can we do that? I don't care about the preferences. Go! The preferences will be made. We are called to impact a community. We are called to reduce the number of 25,000 people in our city, 80% of that population, to be reduced down, 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 
more and more people connecting with the love of Jesus. That's our mission. That's why we exist. Not for your preferences. Not how the way you think church should be done. Because church is not a building, but it's a mission of God. His people multiplying, going. And when we get caught up in religion, guess what? We get so caught up in it that we never actually do something outside of ourselves. We actually never look anything like Jesus because we died for no one. We died for no one. And we only died on the hills for our own preferences and ourselves. We are not called to be stagnant as a church. We are called to be fully into the new covenant. And the new covenant says you're free and you're free to go. Go get them. Bring them with. Eternity is at stake. We live in a world of hopelessness. Get beyond yourself. The pastor is not the disciple maker. Go and make disciples. We're all called to be disciple makers. But we begin to create categories and say, eh, no, no, no. actually, I'm going to kind of just hoard all this for myself. No, no, no. The reason we're here today is to be fueled up in faith to go. The reason we gather today is so you and I can come into this place, see somebody, maybe it's discouraged, and say, you know what God thinks about this situation? Be encouraged. Hey, can I lay my hands? Can I pray on you? Oh, you got, you got a sickness there? Can we lay hands and pray on that? Can we believe that God's going to show up miraculously? Because he's, he's given us promises under his new covenant about the way, how we function. Man. You know what I loved a couple weeks ago when the lights turned off? You know Why? Because once again, it reoriented that this isn't just it, you guys. If this is just it, what are we doing? Because there's a new covenant that goes beyond religion. It says God has given you relationship. He's restoring you. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He expects you that when you're in relationship with him, guess what? You're going to listen to him. You're going to be obedient to him. And you're going to actually go make a difference in a world that's crying out, we need help. And we're saying the ones that are like, yep, we're going to go. We're giving our lives away. It's not about us anymore. It's about the kingdom. And it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom filled with the power of heaven. Amen. Can we pray this morning?